Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 156 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for tuning in to another interview episode where we scour the post-pandemic landscape for those bearers of forgotten boozy wisdom so that we can hopefully piece together a cocktail culture that may once again rise from the ashes. Okay, so maybe that's a little dramatic, but today's interview is a topical one. Our guest is Greg Benson, a bartender, former brewer, and podcast host based in New York City. Greg is the host of the Bar None podcast, as well as a co-host of The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network, alongside Damon Bolte and Souther Teague. He's here to speak with me about a really important piece of legislation that's currently on the table and has the potential for a massive impact on the entire service industry if it gets passed. But before we get all technical and start combing through bills, briefings, and resolutions, let's take a moment for you to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is, well, it's not a cocktail at all, but it is a recipe that I recently developed for brandied cherries. These delicious little flavor bombs are made from tart or sour cherries, usually the Montmorency variety, and the ripeness window for these cherries is a pretty narrow one, and we happen to be right in the middle of it here in mid-July. So if you live near upstate New York, Michigan, or the Pacific Northwest where the majority of these fruits are grown, then you might just be in the position to grab a few quarts and try your hand at brandying them. Now, before I give you my recipe, I want to cite my sources. Admittedly, I took a fusion approach, combining a recipe I found on the Spruce Eats and combining it with Alex Luboff's recipe for brandied cherries from the Speaking Easy podcast. I'll link to both of those on the show notes page so you can compare them to my recipe if you'd like. The ingredients you'll need are as follows. One and a half pounds of sour cherries, six ounces by weight of sugar, six fluid ounces of water, eight ounces of brandy. We use the ubiquitous E&J VS, which you can purchase by the handle. One cinnamon stick, two cloves, one ounce of fresh lemon juice, and one quarter teaspoon of salt. This should ideally yield about two pints of brandy cherries, so feel free to scale it up or down as you see fit. The process for making these cherries is pretty simple if you've ever canned anything before, but if you don't have any experience canning, it might make sense for you to do a little outside research before you commit because there is a potential for messing this up if you are a beginner. Essentially though, the production steps are as follows. First, you've got to pit and de-stem your cherries. This is a step that wasn't done in the Speaking Easy recipe, but it's super easy if you're willing to part with less than 15 bucks for a cherry slash olive pitting tool on Amazon. My advice, definitely de-pit your cherries, but make sure you do it right before you brandy them because they're super delicate and have very thin skins. You don't want these sitting in their own juices overnight getting kind of soft and mushy. Next, combine your water, sugar, lemon juice, salt, and spices, right, the clove and the cinnamon, in a saucepan or pot on the stovetop, stirring constantly over medium to medium high heat until the sugar is dissolved. Once you let all those flavors get to know one another, you add your brandy, continuing to stir over very low heat until the liquid reduces a little. 
Remember, you're adding alcohol to a heat source here, so be sure to follow instructions and use extreme caution. Then, once you've got your brandy syrup where you want it, add the cherries and their juices, stirring very gently until you're confident that the cherry juice is evenly incorporated. At this point, it's time to can, and I recommend doing this in a large stock pot where you can set up a boiling hot water bath. This process in itself contains several important food safety steps, so we'll link to a complete canning resource over on the show notes page and show you several process pictures that we snapped during our 16 pint canning run last weekend. Once you've canned your brandied cherries, I'd recommend storing them in the pantry for about six to eight weeks before opening, which allows the brandy, fruit, and spices to really macerate and develop flavor. Then, once you open them, your cherries should last at least a month or two in the fridge, which means you should make sure you've got some fun cocktail projects lined up before cracking open that jar. So, now that you've got a fun seasonal garnish experiment all lined up for your next weekend of quarantine, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this enlightening conversation with Greg Benson of Bar None and The Speakeasy, some of the topics we discuss include... How Greg transitioned from a career in the brewing world to a life behind the stick, slinging cocktails, niche agave spirits, and happiness. A little about the two podcasts that Greg helps bring to the airwaves, including the deep dive historical contemplations of Bar None and the weekly boozy nerd out sessions of the Speakeasy. Then we focus in on the main subject of this episode, the Restaurants Act, and yes, restaurants in this case is an acronym, a very long, very apt acronym. We talk about the origins of this possible service industry bailout, what it's designed to do for the hospitality world, and the potential impacts it could have if passed. We do a little thought experiment about winning the hearts and minds of legislators as if we were the ghosts of cocktail bars past, present, and future. We riff on the bitter beauty of gentian liqueurs and existential Yelp reviews, and much, much more. Not only does Greg have a great voice, but he's also super passionate about his home bar community in New York City and the larger service industry community that has been devastated by this here super virus that we're all rightfully terrified of. It's always tricky to talk about the logistics and politics of a bailout, but in my opinion, there's no better companion for that conversation than the man who thinks Suze can solve all the world's problems. So without further prelude, please enjoy this legislatively germane, yet also strangely timeless conversation with podcaster and bartender, Greg Benson. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, man. It's great to uh, to, to be on the other side of the interview chair. This is fun. Yeah, and uh, times two for you, because as we'll cover here in a few moments, you're responsible for not just one, but kind of like two awesome podcasts that are actually a part of my weekly slash monthly listening diet. So not only is this a podcast crossover episode, but it's an episode where you and I are going to cover some actually pretty emerging stuff. And that's that's a little bit rare for this podcast because, well, I, I like to cover classic cocktails and those don't tend to be very emerging. But uh, unfortunately, the industry that we both live 
and work and work in and love uh, is is a little bit up in the air right now. So that's why we're taking this moment to really um, kind of download some information and try and share it with people who could actually make a difference. Um, so that's that's going to be the thrust of this episode. But let's start by having you just introduce yourself and uh, tell our listeners who you are and what you do. Yeah, of course. Well, uh, my name is Greg Benson. I've been working in bars since uh, you know since before I left college and about. Four years ago, I was kind of having that, you know, the, the 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 late 20s gut check where you're kind of staring down 30 and you're kind of like, okay, what do I, what do I want to do? Because I've been working at a brewery, which I bet you know, because it's in DC, Blue Jacket. Um, mm. I've been working yes. there for about three years. Great place, great crew. Uh, I was even on the brew, like I was like a brew assistant, kind of like, you know, and, and I don't want to say intern because I hate that word, but like, you know, almost kind of like an old school, like blacksmithing apprentice, except just for making beer. Because for a while there, I thought, you know, that was what I wanted to do. I really fell in love with beer when I was in college. I moved to Scotland. I started working for BrewDog and I was like, this is it. Like, I'm going to work in beer bars and then I'm going to work in a brewery and then I'm going to brew there and then I'm going to open up my own place and that's going to be my life. And I made it three steps in to the point where I was like working in a brewery and I was not cut out for it at all. You know, I realized that to do truly inventive stuff in the world of beer these days, you need to have a head for microbiology, which I do not. So I was kind of looking around at some other stuff, you know, just kind of doing doing the taking stock of what was in my life and what I could do. And uh, as one often does when one is doing this, I was reasonably drunk with a friend of mine one night who is also in the same place in his life and we were kind of and at a certain point i was like you know what i should just start a podcast about all this stuff like like so many other people have done but i think that's how all podcasts get started honestly i think it's someone sitting around having drinks and be like you know what this would make a great podcast we should do it and that was the basis for bar none you know that's uh it's a show that i've been doing for about four years now it's kind of a, a deep dive history show where we take one drink every episode and use it as a lens to examine a particular era or phenomenon or human foible or relationship or what have you. Um, and it's cool because when you look at something like the dry martini, it's like, okay, it had a very specific heyday, like between like the end of World War II and the start of, you know, the Vietnam counterculture era. That was when the dry martini was king. Everybody knows that. But why? Like, what was it about this particular drink that made it so incredibly well suited to this era where, you know, on the surface, American economic prosperity had never been better. And yet we were prescribing methamphetamine to women to help them be better at housework. Like what, what was it about that crazy era that made the dry martini so great in that time? And for the record, dry martinis are delicious still, even to this day, even though, you know, we're not taking meth while we do the laundry. Um, Hey, and... speak for your own upbringing, man. <laughs> speak for your own upbringing. That's true. Maybe it would make it more fun. I don't know. I shouldn't. I shouldn't <laughs> knock it until I've tried it. Um, true. But but as a result of that, um, I got to talking with Souther and Damon, who run the Speakeasy podcast with a great uh, not-for-profit radio station here in Brooklyn called Heritage Radio Network. 
Uh, they've got 35 shows that they do every week, a huge, just wide, broad swath of different topics. And they're all these great deep dives. Like there's a deep dive into beer. There's a deep dive into cheese. Uh, they And it's not just food. Like they have a really amazing show about kind of like the, you know, the immigrant and, and in a way refugee experience in, uh, in cooking. And it's a great network. And Damon and Souther have been running this, you know, fun talk radio program where, they had people in from the drinks industry, like, you know, a lot of really amazing people. They would sit down, they would chat, they would drink. It was, you know, it was it was just it was just kind of like a fun, like goofing around with some of the smartest people in the beverage industry. And after Damon moved to California, I kind of slid into his co-host chair with Souther a little bit. And now at the risk of silver lining a terrible pandemic too much now that we're all recording remotely souther and i and damon out on the west coast can all do the podcast together as a sort of you know id ego super ego relationship every week when we talk to our our guests so it's it's been a lot of fun i like that who is whom oh man well i i think I've thought about this a lot. I'm not sure. I think I think I'm kind of the super ego because I'm kind of the one that can sort of moderate back and forth between the two of them. But I don't know if Damon's infectious optimism or, you know, Souther's kind of like very, very gritty Winston Churchill style pessimism is more id-like or more ego-like. I go back and forth on which is which on a given I, basis. I, I, I would go so far as to say that uh, that Souther would probably embrace the role of the id based on his uh, his bitterness uh, affiliation. And, and yeah, I was just listening to the, the episode. I think it was your latest episode today where Damon just kept on, uh, being, you know, lauded as like, Oh, well that's a really, uh, really sunshiny way to look at this whole thing, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I, I listen to the speakeasy, uh, as often as I can. I don't think I, I don't hit every episode religiously, but it's one of those things where, you know, when I, when I scroll through and I check out the, the, the guests and I'm like, Ooh, that's, that's a guest I need to listen to. One of the nice things about it is that for me, there's just such a, a high level of trust between Souther who runs Amoria Margo, Damon, of course, running Grand Army, and they both have such a wealth of experience on the New York industry front. Now having kind of both branched out either in New York or outside of New York, I love it as just like sort of my authoritative podcast, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, how you've been able to slide in and kind of just add uh, just a different, like another, yeah, a third perspective. And you know, they say the triangle is the strongest shape in nature, and <laughs> you know, even though you know four people in a booth can sound kind of crowded, um, you guys find a way for it not to. Um, so for what it's worth, I think you guys do a great job. It's a product I really love, and it's something that's part of my. Uh, every every week podcasting diet. So thank you. Thanks, man. Well, yeah, it's been it, it was it's as I'm sure you've experienced. It's a little hard switching from doing in person interviews to over. You know, uh, we use a platform called ZenCaster. We're doing this on a platform called Squadcast. I've done interviews over the phone, over FaceTime, and like figuring out how to read those subtle social cues that you can pick up really well in person of when someone's about to start wrapping up what they're saying or when they're about to kind of start jumping up to another point is a lot harder when you're on a medium where, you know, sometimes you can see the other person in two dimensions. Sometimes you can't see them at all. And, you know, it's been, uh, it was, it was 
it's been fun to kind of find that dynamic where the three of us can kind of trust each other even without seeing each other and sort of know who's going to, you know, it's almost like a rugby game where we're just kind of lateraling the conversation to each other, uh, depending on kind of a couple unspoken cues. It's a lot of fun. It really is. It's one of the best things I get to do every week. Yeah, I think that rugby analogy is right on. Um, so as we kind of begin to start turning our attention toward this important legislation that we're about to cover, um, I wanted to just get up to date with you because, you know, so you've made the move from D.C. to New York. You are a service industry guy. Um, what were you doing right before all this nonsense took place? And where do you stand now that we're in kind of full lockdown in New York is, I don't want to say ground zero because that's bad for a couple of different reasons, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a dicey place to be, uh, in the pandemic because, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of trepidation. So I, I want to hear where you were when everything kind of decided to shut down and then how it's been since then for you anyway. Sure. Well, yeah, I was working at a uh, Mezcal pop-up that was in the East Village. I finally, my first ever job in New York was also in the East Village. Loved the location. The job was a slightly different story, but, you know, I moved on and I was able to kind of find my footing and work in some really amazing places elsewhere in the city. But I always, like, missed that energy, you know, that vibe, especially on St. Mark's, because it just has this kind of transportive like, you know, you could you could be walking in front of one store and you get it's like it's like sense memory almost. It's like when you're walking in front of a store and you smell blueberries and all of a sudden you're back in your grandmother's kitchen and you were five. It's like you'd be walking in front of one store and you'll kind of think like, wow, this place is a real kind of like 1980s, like, you know, punk rock vibe. And then you walk a little further, you're like, oh, whoa, this is super, you know, this is almost kind of prohibition speakeasy style stuff. This theater looks like it, you know, used to have a secret tunnel under it leading to the bar next door. Fun fact, it did and still does. And if you ask really nice for the bartenders, they'll let you see it. Um, and I missed that. And I finally was able to get back and be working on St. Mark's at a job that was just a ton of fun. All this bar sold was mezcal and beer and a grilled cheese with the face of Jesus Christ pressed into it on a panini press. We called it a grilled cheeses. Um, and it was, a, it was a fun, very... It walked that fine line that I think a lot of service industry does between seriousness and frivolousness, you know, because we took the the spirits that we had there, the agaves, super seriously. And I, I got a real crash course and I learned a ton on how, you know, a lot of mezcal and ricea and uh, sotol and a bunch of other spirits like that, that I had a kind of glazed knowledge of, like, I got to do a real deep dive, which I'm a dork, so I love that. But it was also just a fun party, you know, it was it wasn't a bar that was trying to be everything to everyone. And so if people walked in and said, can I have a cocktail? We would say, I'm sorry, that's not our vibe, but I'd love to talk to you about this mezcal. And they had two options at that point. They'd say, that's not really what I'm looking for. And we'd say, that's cool. No hard feelings. Uh, check out this great cocktail bar next door. Or they would say, wow, that sounds awesome. Tell me about that. And then it's like, OK, now we're rolling. Like now we can talk about this. And it was all done in a very fun environment. God, it's almost making me sad to talk about this. I'm remembering how much I love this bar now that, I mean, it's a pop-up, so it's popped down now, unfortunately. Um, so I've, you know, I 
I've been on unemployment ever since. You know, I think there's a little bit of a stigma around saying that, but I think we kind of need to get over it. I need to get over it because so many other people are, and it's becoming, I think, a more permanent facet of life, definitely of the service industry than a lot of people thought it was going to be at first. Um, yeah. And I've, you know, yeah. I've had a few yeah, other, tricky. yeah, I've had a few other projects to keep me busy, but at the end of the day, that's kind of it. Just sort of monitoring the news, seeing what's going to happen, trying to figure out if and when a lot of the bars that I had relationships with people at are going to come back. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so like, as, as you talk about this, one of the things that sort of occurs to me is that, uh, well, the good news is you you've got some projects to fall back on, right? At least at least you can be productive during this time when you're when you're not able to uh, be pulling in the money, doing uh, sort of the the craft that that you've self selected as as your passion. Uh, but it, it it is tricky being industry support staff, and that's kind of how I that's what I call myself. I call myself industry support staff because. As much as I'm integrated and very reliant on this great industry that we're all a part of to, uh, you know, to kind of advance the goals of my company and everything like that, um, you know, it, like I, I'm not a bartender. I'm not a distiller. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I, there's so many things that I'm not that when we have this whole pandemic situation, it's interesting. It gives me a completely new perspective on what I am because here I am still trying to, you know, first of all, keep, keep tabs on things. I have been way, way, way more, uh, focused on the news and with like developments in the industry than I had ever been before this happened because any one thing that happens can have so many ripple effects on the decisions that we all make in our, you know, the day-to-day, day-to-day lives, whether you're a distiller, a bartender, a distributor, anybody who's kind of in that three-tier system all the way down to the end consumer, right? Whose preferences we're all trying to sort of guess right now. Do you like to go cocktails? Do you not like to go cocktails? Uh, how, how do we set that up? So um, for me, it's, it's a, it's a I, I think one of the things that is uh, occurring to me is like, man, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, I don't think that's news to anyone, but I think what everyone is trying to figure out is the precise flavor of that uncertainty. Because whether you are a venture capitalist who is responsible for funding multiple major restaurant groups, or whether you are a person who's sitting there on Uber Eats or Postmates or whatever it is, like scrolling to see what you can get from your favorite bar or restaurant, there's a lot of open questions. So hopefully um, what we'll be able to do here is is talk about some opportunities that, that may be coming down the road. So um, why don't you kind of in, intro us to the, the subject that we're going to be talking about here, which is the, the Restaurants Act. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I think it's it's I just want to preface this by jumping off of something that you talked about, about that uncertainty. And then I think a lot of that uncertainty is coming from people having to be get really good really fast at stuff that they have never thought about before. You know, like uh, uh, I was having a conversation with um, an old regular of mine. Funnily enough, uh, we were pretty good friends when she would go to a bar that I used to work at. We hung out outside of work a few times, but we sort of, you know, fell out of touch as you do. And 
I was reading an article in the New York Times, uh, the local paper up here in New York, and uh, it was about these like really just, you know, it was it was the beginning of April and it was about um, Lincoln Medical Center up in the Bronx. So you can get a pretty good sense of what the flavor of the piece was from that. It was not sunshiny. And I'm reading through it and I see that she's actually quoted. So I got to send a text uh, that I never thought I would send that just said, hey, is everything all right? I just read about you in the New York Times and thought I'd check in. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, that's quite the text. Yeah. So fortunately, she's doing OK. But, you know, she was saying that because of that, like there was a whole lot of extra media interest in in her and her involvement in in what was going on up there as a nurse. And, you know, the whole thing is that she's having to keep abreast of like all of these you know what's happening with the legislation that's coming down is this going to affect whether or not someone who is on a visa in oregon can come out here and help with the terrible situation that's happening up in the bronx and i preface this by saying that you know we are as bartenders not dealing with as high stakes situation as the nurses are um obviously but we're having to be good at you know, we've effectively, in a lot of ways, been deputized as public health officials, uh, as, you know, kind of, uh, I, I, you know, saying that we're having to police things is a little bit of a loaded term these days. But, you know, there are a lot of places where people will get a beer and then go next door and hang out and drink that beer. And as bar owners or bartenders, people have to go and say, Hey man, you guys can't do that here. Like it's the, the laws still matter. Like you gotta, you have to go take those home, or at least at the very best, somewhere where I can't see you and I have plausible deniability. Um, yep. Well, there's a reason why uh, the the phrase "to protect and serve" is on the police cars, right? <laughs> that's that's maybe an that's maybe a start for making this whole thing better is having like kind of a, a roving cocktail unit. Maybe I don't know. We'll follow that. I'll follow that one in the idea bank after we're done talking about what we're talking about here. Um, but yeah, and we're also having to, there are a lot of people that I've been talking to who are having to be like in a way turn into armchair legal experts. You know, uh, I, we had Ivy mix who is amazing. Who's had one of the most amazing careers in the entire bar industry on the podcast, uh, two months ago, I think. And it was amazing. But at the time she was working on the piece of legislation that we're about to talk about, um, I don't know this for a hundred percent fact and Ivy, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but like, I'm 99% sure she's not a lawyer and yet she's still <laughs> out there helping to draft legislation because we need it because, you know, not to go too far down a rabbit hole here. I'll just say that the federal response to this has been non-existent at best and I'll leave it at that. Um, but you know, there it's left to a lot of people who have gotten really good at, you know, work, they built really good relationships with the producers of these spirits. They've done their homework. They know how to make an amazing drink. They've run a bar, which already introduces you to a whole host of other skills that you never had to be good at when you're making cocktails. Like my first GM job, it's like, okay, great. You can make an old fashioned. Now you got to learn how to plumb a toilet. Like that's kind of how the whole thing is on a huge, massive industry wide scale, because we're having to kind of do all the DIY stuff just to keep afloat, you know? 
Yeah, um, it, it's it's tricky at best. I mean, I, I think I think a good way to sum it up is to say that I mean, like the the good news is this, right? Bar and restaurant folks uh, tend to have to wear multiple hats on a daily basis when things are going well. Uh, so at the very least, you know, there 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 could be less resilient demographics that this uh, would happen to. Of course, it's happening to all of us, but it's happening. Uh, in a very particular way in the service industry. And I, I think that's a, a perfect um, way to introduce what the the Restaurants Act is about. Now, you sent me a little bit of information about this before we got started. I was able to review it, but why don't you just give us the overview about what this act is designed to do, specifically knowing that this is certainly related, but it's not tied to all of the other financial stuff that has come through with the PPP and all this stuff. So knowing that this is a completely separate thing, although it might, you know, be related in, in a number of ways, like what is this thing all about? Sure. So it's a, it's a bill that's about uh, protecting independent restaurants. Um, it's, there are about half a million of them in the United States and uh, there's no simpler way to say it. They don't have lobbyists. So there's really no one that's going to go to bat and fight for them in Congress except for themselves. So a couple people, Ivy included, this is how I found out about this, uh, joined together to form the uh, Independent Restaurant Coalition. And they, oh God, now I can't remember if it's coalition or council. It's one of the two. It begins with C. I know that for a fact. Um, but they've banded together to introduce to work with uh, Earl Blumenauer, who is a representative from Oregon, to introduce a piece of legislation uh, in the in the House called the Restaurants Act, which stands for Real Economic Support that acknowledges unique restaurant assistance needed to survive. So, give give the intern that came up with that baby a raise. That is just, mwah. but. Mm -hmm. The idea is that, you know, if these restaurants that all told make up about 4% of the GDP go down, it's going to be as damaging as if the airlines failed. Airlines, by the way, make up 5% of the total GDP. So it's an act that's designed to give bespoke legislation to help the very particular needs of, you know, the of the independent restaurants in this country some help because they, we didn't get a lot of bang for our buck out of the PPP uh, because we're not, you know, your typical small business. Like restaurants have a whole bunch of different needs and requirements and the fact that they're such a, a high staff sort of uh, businesses and the fact that those staff members really, you know, in a lot of ways are very dependent on these jobs and it employs a lot of people that, you know, in, in a lot of ways don't have access to you know, the sort of white collar jobs that are out there. Um, it gives a lot of very specific legislation that's going to help these businesses. So what it's projected to generate is uh, $183 billion in primary benefits to the economy with an extra 65 billion that's tacked on in secondary benefits. So that's gonna be like, you know, if your restaurant 
goes under, then the person that supplies your fish is going to lose a customer. The person that supplies your cheese is going to lose a customer. The plumber is going to lose a customer. So that's that extra bit that's, you know, the, the, the side dish along with the main stake of the $183 billion that's going to put back, which at the end of the day is about twice what it's going to cost. Um, so I think it's a really smart piece of legislation. And I mostly reached out to you and wanted to be on this show because I think people should be aware of it. And they should also be aware that, you know, senators and congresspeople have very, very easy ways to get in touch with them. It's just it's just a Google and a little contact me box away if anybody wants to uh, voice their support for a bill that I think is very smart and could save a lot of jobs and a lot of businesses. Right. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I've got the bullet points of this uh, right in front of me here. And, and we're going to we're going to post these as long as they're still available uh, over on the show notes page for this podcast over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. And um, one of the things that I really like about this is that it's 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 targeted. It's not just a it's not just a massive chunk of money that's meant as a PR move because, you know, like rewind rah, 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 all the way back to you know all the way back to when the ppp was uh the, the paycheck protection program was uh passed or any of these associated um economic relief measures were passed by congress and and a lot of us were you know uh breathing a sigh of relief that that uh when when the the ilian starts with a b or a t as opposed to an m um, you know, all of a sudden eyebrows start to raise and people start to think, you know, realistically, oh, hey, maybe, maybe I'll get some of this money, right? Yeah. Um, so the B and the T are good, uh, letters for aliens to start with. But, um, you know, one of the things that's tricky is that when you have a large, just bolus or chunk or hunk or however you want to call this large mass of money, uh, and then a bunch of government bureaucrats responsible for divvying it up. Well, there's a lot of slippage there. And I, I tend to think personally that the opportunity for really targeted bailouts and really targeted government money towards very specific sectors of the economy is just a much better idea for me because as I think about how this might be implemented now, of course, this is me being putting on the, the literal Damon Bolte hat, right? Over my, <laughs> over my, my long braids that I have here. They're um, very impressive. I'm putting, I'm putting on, I'm putting on the optimist hat here. Uh, my optimist hat tells me that, well, well, damn, like it seems like the rules here should be more clear, right? This has to be independent restaurants. Well, that seems to be a, a something that you can either qualify or disqualify someone easily for this this aid. And then, you know, um, I, I, on the other side of it, you know, the, the ripple effects of this bailout, you know, kind of outweighing the costs of it, also seems to be a, a pretty cut and dry situation as you mentioned well when the restaurant opens up the plumber has to do his plumbing thing and the cheese and the fish and you know the government bureaucrat who's responsible for approving these various permits also has to get paid for you know doing this job and if there are too many people just sitting around twiddling their thumbs well even some of these state and local uh, government institutions that are responsible for approving these things and, and monitoring these spaces are going to shrink so part of me thinks that this targeted legislation is um, 
better than just a, here, we're gonna slap a big number with a B or a T in front of it and hope that people have positive approval ratings for the, uh, the entity that is currently in uh, a room somewhere pretending to be important. Um, <laughs> but that's about all I can say for that. So, I mean, give me give me your responses to what I'm saying. No, Am I on the right track? No, 100%. You're absolutely on the right track. I think that it's, it's, uh, it's a sniper rifle and not a blunderbuss. And I think that's what makes it really important because, you know, if you... Nobody likes bailouts like no one I've, you know, in my adult lifetime, which honestly hasn't even been all that long in the grand scheme of things, there have been two massive spates of bailouts and I haven't been happy about them either time. I'm arguably less happy about them now. But on the other hand, like part of me realizes that, you know, we we need this. Like we can't just say, well, throw back our hands and say, well, sorry, not our problem, because then everything that we've built over the past, you know, 20 years is going to all come crashing down. And that's what I like about this is that when you target something like this, the opportunities for waste and the opportunities for uh, not just of, of resources, but of time in, you know, there being parts of it that don't make sense, parts of it that are difficult to implement, parts of it that are difficult to access for restaurant owners uh, go away. Like I have talked to so many restaurant owners who say that like my ritual for a week was to wake up at nine, make coffee, and then be on the phone with my bank for seven hours trying to figure out if I could get a PPP loan or not. Like I did that for days on end until I finally, you know, got it or didn't, I'm sure in some cases. Um, and I think that the opportunity when you have one piece of legislation like this, that's like, this is exactly who it's for. This is exactly what it's going to do. And these are exactly the benefits that you can expect to see as a result of that is going to make the whole process smoother and it makes me trust when you know the economic study says this is what you can expect to see as dividends as a result like i trust that more because it's so much more specific in how it's going to work and what it's going to do right and listen like during the early phases of this pandemic when a lot of European countries got hit harder than the United States had been hit to that point. Um, and then consequently, as the U.S. got hit, we were seeing a lot of uh, videos actually coming from places like Canada or European countries where there were bailouts available or even just pictures on Instagram of those dope like care packages that South Korea like... <laughs> pallet jacked into people's houses. That's how much food and supplies they were given to stay the hell home. You know, so there's there's a lot of proof of concept elsewhere that we have had the chance to look at from other places around the world, whether it's, you know, South Korea or Canada or somewhere in Europe of being like, hey, man, it took me two minutes to go onto my government website click a couple buttons and, oh, hey, by the way, I just got a notification from my bank that I just got a direct deposit for this aid, right? And all of us here are sitting here experiencing exactly the story that you just explained, which is it's not clear. It is changing all the time. It is not clear whether or not these things are grants, loans, who's eligible. And and that's very frustrating. What that what that uh, leads to is, is, is low trust, right? It's it, we, we have very low trust 
to be fair, we had very low trust for the most part going into <laughs> all of this. Uh, but but this is this is sort of like uh, now we're in the pudding beneath the crust, right? This is this is this is the proof actually in the pudding. We're actually just you know enjoying the uh, terribly disgusting f- fruits of of other people's labors now. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's incredibly frustrating. I, I can sympathize on that level. Uh, and, and one of the things that I wanted to do, hopefully, um, is take this opportunity to imagine that we're in a Christmas carol, right? The the classic ah. Dickensian novel back back when the novel was new and fresh and exciting, just barely out of its serialized format in being published in local papers. And, and I would love for you to do kind of to take us to through a couple phases of this. First, what I'd love for you to do is imagine that you being a member of the New York City um, service industry kind of like cohort would be able to take a legislator who had a deciding vote on this legislation through kind of like a tour, whether you're talking about the ghost of Christmas past or the ghost of Christmas present, you know, just give give me an idea of what you would show this person to influence their vote on this subject. Because I think that the details here and some of the stories that kind of slide out of the cracks are going to be important for our listeners to wrap their heads around uh, and then hopefully also be able to take take some action when, when possible. First off, do I have to do this in a 19th century British accent? Uh, <laughs> if, you, if, if you're looking for me to set a constraint that says, yes, you have to do an accent, <laughs> then I will totally do that. But no, you don't have okay, to if you don't I, want to. I won't subject your listeners to that. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I guess what I would do is I would have, you know, I'd have to have uh, my phone out and open to Instagram for this. And I would take someone through the East Village here in New York. And I'd sort of stop in front of, because here in New York, we have um, outdoor dining. We've been able to have outdoor dining for about a month now. Maybe it's been a week, maybe it's been three years, who knows, but I think it's about a month. Um, And uh, we'll be, you know, standing in front of a bar in the general neighborhood where I used to work. And I'll sort of show them a photo from like a random Friday or Saturday night of that bar from sometime last year. And I'll show them how packed it is. Like you'll you'll be able to see like there's no way, you know, you're going to have to wait like 10 minutes for a drink and fight your way up to the bar. But like it's got a cool vibe and like you want to be there. And then I'm going to point to the three outdoor tables that they're allowed to have right now. And I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to show them my phone and say, this is what they need. And I'm going to point to the tables and say, this is what they have. And there's been a lot of talk about whether or not outdoor dining is doing a little bit more harm than good. And honestly, there there are good points on a lot of sides, and I haven't fully come down on one side or another yet personally. But I will say that I worry that it gives this... (laughs) There's some operatic music being played in a traffic jam behind me in my apartment. I apologize. I didn't I didn't cue that up right as I was building to the climax of my story, it, but it fits very well. Um, Absolutely. But what I'm uh, what I'm saying is that I worry that there's a false sense of normalcy that this conveys, like the fact that you can go to a restaurant, sit down, get a meal, have a beer, have a server put your card down, tip, and then walk away like you would do on any other summer night in 2019 
conveys this sense that things for the restaurants are back to normal and they're not. They are very, very, very not. And I, I would hope that this theoretical legislature uh, that I was taking around the East Village playing the part of Victorian England would would kind of get that, you know? Yeah, well, and I think I think what that re- I mean, obviously, what it reveals is exactly what you just said. Things are not back to normal, and um, you know, I, I I find myself torn very much because I'm I'm very much a I'm not a believer in just like imagining and manifesting, you know, like the secret and all that shit. Like if you th- <laughs> if you build it, they will come. If you think of a thing and are positive enough, then uh, you know, then it's going to happen. I don't believe in that, but I, I do believe in. Um, you know, I, as a thought experiment, imagine you could get all economists to just, well, pandemic aside, in a non-pandemic time, imagine you could get all economists to be like, hey, everything's looking up, folks. Uh, guess what would happen to the stock market in the next day? It would go up because just be, just because people said it would. So on one hand, I, I do kind of see the, the impetus to pretend not even pretend but just sort of make a gesture toward normalcy or to simply just maintain until we can get back to normal as a positive gesture but but on the other hand you know what what that story kind of revealed to me uh is is a dirty little secret that um that reveals a favor that the the service industry has been uh doing for the general public for a long time now which is taking redonkulously small profit margins um just because people don't feel like they should have to pay that much for their food. Um, and, you know, if you look at the operating budget and the expenses and the balance sheet of, of any bar or restaurant, man, the margins are, are thin. Uh, most people know this, uh, but I don't know if people really realize how thin they are. So what we're bumping up against here is the fact that restaurants and bars have to make the decision to either A, remain closed, which going back to that thing that I was saying about the value of just being open to be open like that kind of hurts them staying closed but you could also argue that it hurts them to be open because they're operating at a huge deficit uh which is crazy for anybody to think about it's a, it's it's your classic catch 22 right absolutely yeah i mean the analogy that Souther's fond of using uh on the podcast that i steal with impunity is that it's like bailing out the titanic with a shot glass like that's kind of how it is is it's not the at the end of the day the juice isn't worth the squeeze and there's a certain you know, there is something to be said for being open in some capacity, even though you're running at a deficit every single day, but it's not sustainable. And bars and restaurants aren't going to be able to do this indefinitely, which is why, you know, again, not a fan of bailouts. But as long as we're as as long as we're in a place where we all agree that they are necessary, I think this is something that really needs to happen for the restaurant industry. Well, I think there's a huge difference between bailing out, you know, go back to a couple of, you know, one or two bailouts ago, bailing out the investment banker who has a couple mil in the bank already versus bailing out the person who's working paycheck to paycheck to make sure that, uh, you know, you get the correct appetizer and the uh, the cocktail has the correct wash line. Uh, I'd much rather bail out person number two and uh, trust that person number one can probably manage on their own uh, for a couple months without a little bit of supplemental income. <laughs> so, so would I, man. And I mean, one other one other thing that you know is that I keep bumping up against is the airline bailout when just a huge amount of 
money that these companies have made over the past few years has gone to stock buybacks. I mean, if you show me one company, one restaurant in America that has bought back some of their stock, one independent restaurant, I'll, I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'll redo this entire thing in the Victorian accent that I threatened to do a few <laughs> minutes ago. I don't know. But I, I, I think that in a way, you know, it's, I don't know. It's it's one of these things where it's like, what is the proper "quote unquote" capitalist response? Like, you know, the the airline that spent ninety six cents of every dollar enhancing the worth of its stock and didn't prepare for a rainy day fund. Like, is bailing them out really, you know, letting the free market do its job? And if you know, if you if you look deep into your heart and you decide that it is, and far be it for me to say, you know, who. Who would reach that conclusion? But if you do, I think you necessarily have to look at the restaurant that's operating on razor, razor thin margins and in an industry where, you know, the they, they don't even pay their staff. The payment of the staff is built into an extra, quote unquote, voluntary gratuity that goes on at the end of every of every meal or beer or whatever you're buying. Like someone operating on margins like that definitely deserves one just as much. Right. And I think what that reveals, too, is that like unlike many bailouts that we have witnessed in the past couple decades, uh, this one that we're talking about, the, the Restaurants Act, is actually necessarily sort of by definition aimed at small businesses. And OK, let's say that the PPP program and, you know, all these the, the, the first wave, we'll call them, of, of, of COVID-19 bailouts were also sort of marketed as going to small businesses. Guess what we're learning from all the the news headlines is, uh, by the way, uh, they weren't. Uh, they actually got kind of uh, Mr. Pac-Man by uh, people mm-hmm. who, you know, based on the tone of this administration, unsurprisingly, aren't small businesses. And so, uh, you, know, you know, one of the things I like is, is setting parameters. I, I, you know, I think... I think this is something that Souther could get behind because I've, I've heard on the speakeasy Souther talk about this idea in the past is, you know, setting setting constraints actually allows for usually more flourishing, more creativity, um, just just more uh, more precision, ultimately. And I, I think I think uh, at a time when we have such low confidence in the people who are a making this money available and then b uh, in charge of disseminating it in a fair and uh, effective way, uh, I feel like creative constraints or just simply constraints in this fact, making making this more of a targeted bailout is is just a good idea in general. So so I think I'm, I'm really glad that you were you're able to come on, kind of talk us through uh, some of the benefits of this. Uh, I'm sure that Ivy, uh, you know, could could do uh, an incredible job, you know, walking us through this. And and what I might do actually is, um, you know, I had an interview recently with Chris Swanger, who is uh, the president of the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, and they are very heavily involved in lobbying for a lot of these a lot of these issues. Uh, I might I might um, you know slip him an email and and um, you know maybe if you can pass along Ivy's contact info, maybe we can get. 
uh, a situation where where they could get her on their platform to uh, to talk a little bit more about it because clearly it's going to be an ongoing situation and we really want to get not only the bar and restaurant folks behind this but also the folks who listen to this podcast who are at least 50% if not more than 50% home bartenders and just folks who are also sitting at home chewing their nails for different reasons and might have time to pop open a browser tab for five minutes and uh, write, an, write an email to the representative you know absolutely and I would totally encourage any anybody that's listening to do that it actually is I I will say that the return on investment for how good you feel versus how much time it takes is monstrous. Like the amount of senators and Congress people that I have emailed about things that I've been concerned about since this started, it takes less than 10 minutes to find the proper way to contact these people. And that real kind of like Mr. Smith goes to Washington feeling that you get deep in your feels when you're done is phenomenal. Like you're, you're walking on air for the rest of the day. So I would say even, you know, even if me blathering about it for however long this has been, hasn't convinced you do it for yourself because you'll feel really good about, you know, taking a little bit of, you know, civic power in your own hands and and using it for something that you care about. Totally. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I think that that's a great segue uh, into my last question for you, which is really, you know, what we've done is we, we've set up this Dickensian vision where, you know, you've taken you've taken your hypothetical representative on a tour through the East Village uh, with with Instagram being able to show like, hey, here we are this Friday night. This was a Friday night three months ago. Um, uh, t- tell me what's different, you know, circle the things that are different in this picture. <laughs> um, uh, w- is there any way for us to imagine that there would be a ghost of Christmas future here that could show us a, a you know, a, a positive vision of what could come along? Uh, and I guess to to kind of modify that, I, I guess an easier way to ask would be to say, like, is there anything to get excited about? Uh, have you heard any stories of particular innovations or uh, responses to this whole situation that have that have made you? proud to be in the service industry and hopeful for how things are going to progress moving oh, forward? Oh, dude, so many. I mean, like the the response by career industry professionals right when this all got started was huge. I mean, um, a bunch of f- folks from the team that I used to work at at Illegal started uh, a group called Hosp United. So it was hospitals and hospitality put together. And they were just going around to restaurants in the city grabbing meals from them and just driving them up to the hospitals for all these, you know, everybody that was working 14 hour shifts, six days a week at them when, when things were at their worst here in New York city. Um, and I think I've, I've used this analogy a couple of times, but, uh, sometime, and I think like the sixties or seventies, there was a huge earthquake in Anchorage, Alaska. It was a 9.2 magnitude earthquake. Like it was buildings were falling down. It was nuts. And this was the Cold War. So in the aftermath, um, the federal government dispatched a bunch of people to kind of go up there and observe because they wanted to see like, if we really do, you know, if, if, if society as we know it comes to a screeching halt, a screeching nuclear halt, what are people going to do? And I think there was a lot of suspicion that like they're going to get up there and, you know, it's going to be like Mad Max's Australia and people are going to be eating each other and shit like that. But what they actually saw was 
this very kind of Norman Rockwell vision of people just helping out their neighbors going, hey, what do you need? I got that. What else do you need? I know somebody else who got who's got that. I'll go talk to them and see if they can get it for you. And that was what I was seeing a lot of here in New York in the early days of this. And I'm very, very, very cautiously optimistic about our prospects coming out of this um, because the world doesn't really break all that often. And when it does, we have an opportunity to put it back together better than it was before or worse. Like there's also that possibility that it could happen too. But um, Claire Sprouse recently uh, reopened Hunky Dory, which is her bar here in Brooklyn, and they're paying all of their staff the you know the the mandated not the tip minimum wage the mandated minimum wage of fifteen dollars an hour and I think we have a chance now while everything is in pieces to look at how everything fits together and really take a hard uncomfortable look at some of the bad ways that the restaurant industry was put together and look at how that contributes to you know lack of health care lack of financial security burnout and say we don't want that when we put this back together let's take this time while we have it to figure out a better way mm -hmm. yeah i think there's something to be said for being differently uncomfortable uh we're all uncomfortable right now. oh yeah i don't know anybody who's oh, yeah. not uncomfortable <laughs> But I think I think that's a cool opportunity that, that you're alluding to, right? Uh, the opportunity to be differently uncomfortable, and and part of being differently uncomfortable is embracing the discomfort, right? And and uh, acknowledging that you have a role in the discomfort, and uh, that there are certain things you can do or not do to minimally affect that. And it, you know what, if, if you're a person with a, a large network or a person who can talk to your friends or talk to people even in your small network to, to begin some sort of momentum, then then that is going to affect the way that things look uh, moving forward. And, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of the final passages of one of my favorite books, which is called Invisible Cities by uh, an Italian author named Italo Calvino. And the cool thing about Italo Calvino, uh, he's, he's a, a brilliant, brilliant writer. Um, and he wrote this book. And the premise of this book is, is Marco Polo uh, talking, having a series of conversations with Kublai Khan. And Kublai Khan is, is sitting in his palace at the height of the Mongol Empire. And uh, Kublai Khan has uh, nonetheless really not seen any of his empire. So he's relying on stories from people like Marco Polo to kind of uh, inform him about what this vast realm that he owns is like. And the 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 joke of the book or the kind of premise that the book operates under is that none of these places that Marco Polo describes are real. They're <laughs> all allegories, right? There's the city that's on built on massive stilts as a metaphor for isolationism. There's the city that's built out of cider cider uh, spider silk. Uh, cider silk would also be interesting, but That'd spider be a fun silk. City. I'd go there. <laughs> draped between draped draped over a chasm. There's the city where one part of it is is an image, and the other part of the city is a mirror image reflection in water. I mean, these are amazing, lyrical, beautiful places that he describes. And yet, nonetheless, they're 
pretty patently false. Like there, there's no question about whether these are made up or not. And at the end of the at the end of this whole thing, Marco Polo and and Jen, uh, Kublai Khan are sitting there, and and Kublai Khan pulls out this you know a map that one would imagine. Uh, was designed in the Renaissance. It's one of those maps where where the the water spills over the edge of the world. For example, there are sea monsters, and you know, funnily enough, we're in an age where people have debates over whether the Earth is flat. So I don't think that this is a, a bad time to necessarily be talking about this stuff. But there's a passage, and I'm paraphrasing here, that um, to me is is one of the most important pieces of literature that, that I've ever wrote to the point that I'm, I'm tearing up uh, about to, to speak about it here. And basically, Kublai Khan uh, turns to Marco Polo and says, but what if all of these things that you've told me and what about, what about all of these learnings that you've conveyed to me indicate that we're all moving toward the infernal city, toward the inferno, toward basically a type of hell, right? Uh, another way to put that would be sort of like a dystopia. And Marco Polo's response is very simply that, um, you know, if there is a hell, if there is a true dystopia, then it's the one that we've created by living and being together day after day. And the only way to combat that is to take the opportunities every day to find the small things that are not inferno, that are not hell, that are not dystopia, and give them space and let them grow. And, And to me... That has such a huge amount of resonance in this because you and I are both in cities. I'm in Washington, D.C., allegedly responsible for making certain decisions that benefit our nation. You're in New York City, the city that made cocktails and and bar culture in the United States uh, during the cocktail renaissance, a, a thing that the rest of the world looked at and went, holy shit, Right. Um, we're both in these cities where so much seems to be going wrong. And, and so that's why I wanted to take that moment, share that little story and, and, uh, and just say that, you know, I hope, um, you know, that our conversation here has, has at least made people stop, step back and think, and, and, and maybe, you know what, if, if you don't want to write your legislator, that's okay. But I would certainly encourage you to, at least in your day-to-day life, find something that is not Inferno and give it space and let it grow. Couldn't have said it better myself, man. Mar- Marco Polo took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah, um, he's he's totally a bro. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly what you just said. I think it's important to, you know, when things break, look at them and say, is this how it should always be or or is there a way you know are there are there better parts of this that we can put back together in a better way you know is is what what parts of this are inferno that we can cut out and what parts actually genuinely work and help people in whatever definition of helping people you want because i think you know giving someone a beer at the end of a shitty day is a helpful thing to do and it's one of my favorite things to do, and I'm sad that I can't do it currently um, for anybody except, you know, my roommates and my girlfriend. <laughs> I, I remember listening to an episode where you were like, yeah, I just keep asking my roommates if I can get them a water. <laughs> like, are, are you sure? Are you sure you're okay? You sure you're all set? Okay, okay. I'll, I'll leave you alone. Here's, here's your check. I'm just going to leave this right here whenever you're, whenever yeah. you're ready. And that's yeah. how I get the apartment to myself for a night. It totally nice. works. Nice. 
<laughs> nice. Uh, well, Greg, I mean, this has been awesome. I mean, it, it, there's no way getting around the fact that this is a heavy topic. Um, but, you know, one thing we can lighten it uh, with is uh, maybe a few lightning round questions if you got the time. Hit me. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Favorite cocktail of all time. And if you don't have a favorite, what's something you've been more obsessed with recently? I'm drinking one right now. The Negroni, man. I, I love this drink because I think... It's it's the gateway drug for so many people to realize that there are more cocktails out there than Manhattan martini margarita old fashioned like it's the first kind of not 101 cocktail that a lot of people have and it's a true eye opener. I also think for a lot of people it's the first thing that they encounter on a sort of the culinary journey of of you know getting into cocktails that is just unapologetically bitter and complicated and i think that embracing that and embracing like oh this can it it doesn't have to be immensely immediately like satisfying to my lizard brain for me to like it like it can make me stop and think and go what whoa whoa wait whoa what's going on here uh and that just opens so many doors for for me you know, exploring the cocktail and culinary world. And I think for a lot of other people too. Also love that one-to-one-to-one ratio because if you're at your buddy's place and they happen to have Campari gin and red vermouth, but they don't have, you know, the the molded Japanese jigger from Cocktail Kingdom, all they've got is the souvenir shot glasses from their cousin's wedding that's divorced now. You know, it's not a problem. You just go one, two, three, Perfectly proportioned Negroni right there. Beautiful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love the whole lizard brain thing. And I think if there's a cocktail on the other side of the Negroni that kind of poses a similar role, right? I almost think of it as the role of the koan, which is this like Zen meditation piece. It's like usually they're nonsense parables. And you're meant to like, as a Zen student, kind of sit there and contemplate this thing and meditate on it and and nobody has one single answer to this. Like you have to like give your answer to your Zen master. And if the Zen master is pleased with it, then you may pass. Right. And I think similarly, everybody has a different journey with the Negroni, but to me, the next level on that kind of following in that equal parts ratio is the last word. Oh yeah. It's complicated in a different way. It's completely wacky in a different way as well and uh but it still has the whole equal parts thing that makes you sit back and uh and kind of wonder what you did wrong in your life that you can't have a, sim- a simple equal parts solution to any problem in your day <laughs> it's true and there is something very unique about the last word that that causes that maybe it's just the difference between being four parts as opposed to three but like yeah something about that is like ah, if, if only everything was as simple as just mashing all of these ingredients together you know, in, and just, you know, taking four equal parts of something. And it's funny, I, I really do kind of think that those two drinks are, are spiritual cousins. Maybe it's because they came into my life at about the same time. And I think also because, you know, they are drinks that people, you know, bartenders tend to, tend to introduce to servers who are curious about cocktails, like I was at the time when I started drinking mm-hmm. them. It was kind of like, well, you know, you've had a margarita try this it's totally different and uh yeah and i and and it's funny that they came from such completely different processes and parts of the world and eras in history and yet they do kind of hit hit the same spot psychologically of like oh well this 
is unlike anything I've experienced before, and I want to know more about it. Right. Each one has sort of like a Rumpelstiltskin quality where you could imagine <laughs> like a little elf or gnome like leaving this and you, you find it on the table in the morning and drink it and have to figure out the riddle of it. Totally. Um, yeah. It's just they're, they're both completely silly and ridiculous, but yet they're equal parts. And I think that's that's like this the the circle that one must square when dealing with the Negroni in the last word. But anyway, amazing. Uh, big fan of both of those cocktails. So next question would be, if you were a cocktail ingredient, ingredients, what would you be and why? If we're going on the bitter train here, I'm going to go with Sue's um, for a couple reasons. Uh, because I, I, I love bitter ingredients in cocktails. I like all of the drinks that I make career-endingly dry and bitter, and I have to modulate that whenever I'm putting them on menus. But Sue's is interesting because it is so just in your face and unapologetically sharp, but it's also such a bright thing in a way that has almost no fruit notes whatsoever. Like, you know, Aperol is bright, but it has that orange thing to it. Like Sue's is floral and earthy and all of these things that like you would make you, if, if I were to lay out all of the things that I taste in Sue's and you'd never had it and you had to picture in your head, you would probably picture something that looks like Chinar or Fernet, like something really like beefy and earthy, but it somehow manages to be so light and I almost think I've kind of shown the Susiness of my of my personality here over this interview because, you know, I am. We've been talking a lot about a lot of like heavy, serious stuff that is uncomfortable to look at. But at the end of the day, like, I think it's, you know, it's so much better to take that and say, OK, what can I do? What's the what's the how can I conjure a silver lining of this into being versus just being like, add screw it <laughs> i'm just gonna have a drink yeah nothing no, wrong I, with I that by Suze. the way but just in moderation right right now I, I love Sue's. it's uh it's it's a wonderful uh addition to my liquor cabinet have you ever uh tried the sailor's aperitif i have i i like it but i it doesn't have quite the same kick for me as Sue's does mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like taken on their own they stack up pretty nicely right next to each other but right i don't know i i can't see myself obsessively thinking that sailors is going to fix everything that's wrong in a cocktail I've just invented the way I always do with Sue's the way I've had more than once a regular tell me when I was messing with something and I was like you know what this cocktail needs and before I even say it they go Sue's doesn't fix everything Greg and I always say yes it does and they're <laughs> right most of the times but sometimes I am and it's super satisfying Whenever it happens. <laughs> I love that you have a neurosis that <laughs> somehow self-reinforces despite <laughs> despite the math. Uh, I love that. That's a very bartender-y thing to have. Uh, so, so I love it. And I, and I love Sue's. So uh, amazing. Um, next question. Here's the Widowmaker. Cocktail with anybody, past or present. Who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture. Oh, man. This is a, this is, this is a super... This is a tough one. I mean... My knee-jerk reaction is to just think about how fun it would be to get loaded on sidecars in 1920s Paris with like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway and Picasso and Alice B. Toklas and Cole Porter and all those guys. Um, but there's one other, It's this is going to be a super weird answer. Um, but about 12 years ago, 
my buddies and I stumbled onto a Yelp account. This is when Yelp was really big. Uh, that was run out of Boston by a guy named Sal F. And it was these, he would do these reviews of like, you know, like the hot dog cart on the corner of 2nd and 25th, or like this Motel 6, which closed two years ago. But they were very rarely about those places. There were these really kind of beautiful, sad, like Charles Bukowski-esque meditations on like his life and he talks a lot about, you know, taking care of his wife while she was battling cancer and like kind of trying to like these these fleeting interactions with people in the service industry whose job it is to, you know, they all sort of try and help. And he's kind of this like very beautiful understanding of like, I know they're doing their best, but they don't have what I need. But I took a little piece of something to help me in this moment. And that's what I want. And I have so many fucking questions for this guy first of all why yelp like why he remains to this day the only positive thing i can say about this platform ever it's the only thing i've ever enjoyed and he doesn't actually review anything that i'm ever gonna go to and most of the stuff is probably closed anyway by now even before covid um but also just i kind of i want to know what his story is really like there, I'm obsessed with like ungoogleable questions because we live in an era where it's so easy to like anytime you wonder, you're like, what was the name of the original drummer for the Beatles? You can get that in two seconds. Just pull out the supercomputer that we all keep in our pockets at all times, punch a few, you know, letters in and boom, you got your answer. You don't have to actually use your human brain to think about it. And very infrequently do we encounter problems that Google can't solve. And I think there's something beautiful about how infuriating they are. And it kind of mm. makes you realize it's like, we didn't always have this. Like I, Sal, Sal's stuff has disappeared. I'm sure I have it saved as a Word document on some old laptop somewhere, but I haven't been able to read it in years. And the fact that it's so, something like that could disappear so completely. And there are questions that I want to know the answers to that I can't is like, it's, it's, it's frustrating, but there's also something kind of reassuring about the fact that we're not omniscient. Like our phones don't have everything we want to know in them, you know? Mm -hmm. So I would, I would like to talk to this. I would like the chance to finally talk to this person and find out what his deal is. It is if any of this was true, if he was just, some you know bu poetry student running a weird experiment like what what was going on i don't know and i never will and that it, it's it drives me nuts and it fascinates me at the same time you might want to type it into google and see if it was some as you mentioned some poetry oh master's i have thesis i have i have gone on like Nothing? hours long journeys at two in the morning fueled by a couple negronis uh, trying to see if there's any shred of evidence left of this person on the internet. And so far I've come up with nothing. Man, that's like, that's you're in this, this realm, like basically of urban legend right now, which is, which is incredible. Um, and what it makes me think of, you know, talking about like the, uh, the actual, the, the sort of invigoration that you can get from the actual open frontier of a question that is not immediately answerable on Google, um, is, 
sort of reminds me of like the tragedy of the asymptote, which is, you know, the asymptote is, you know, always approaching, you know, approaching, but never sort of intersecting with the goal that you have mathematically plotted out to it. And just like, once you get close enough to something, you know, it's just kind of boring. Like once you, if you're sitting there making fractions of a percent of progress on something, you know, like that's, that's the definition of monotony. But if there's something that's just so wide open, such a wide open question that, that requires uh, a skill set beyond the, the the thumbs typing in the Google questions. Uh, I think that's actively exciting these days, and I think that's probably yeah. It's a weird answer, but it's a uh, pretty fucking exciting. It is, yeah. There's some there's something oddly refreshing about not being able to know something, you know, in an era when yeah. we can know so much so easily without having to really do a lot of effort. Damn, son, that's good. Uh, uh, as I transition to the next question, just briefly, if you had to guess, gun to your head right now. What would Sal F enjoy for a drink? Oh, I, I know this. Uh, he he's he's a light beer and vodka guy. Okay, so uh, shot shot in a beer, like shot of vodka and light beer, or is he like a light beer and then maybe vodka soda before he hits the road? He he's <laughs> he seems like a straight from the vodka bottle type of guy, but you know, I would mm. I would probably pick us up, you know, uh, some high lifes or something and we could just chill and I could ask him what was up or maybe, or maybe, maybe it's just some hipster playing a hoax and we could, you know, go and have a few last words and laugh about it. I don't know. I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm having what he's having, I guess is the answer. Right. Right. Yeah. Either way, it's a satisfying uh, conclusion. Uh, amazing. What is a common or traditional cocktail ingredient that you've never tasted and why? I've never had baiju. Um, I, I know it was, I was getting real close to being able to have some right when everything started shutting down. I've had it in cocktails, but I've never had the experience to actually try it by itself, uh, which I, which I really want, uh, but I haven't been able to get there yet. Maybe one day when we're on new earth, uh, that actually you've, you've inspired me. This is going to be my first quest now. Uh, Derek Sandhouse uh, has just launched a Baijiu brand that's sort of dedicated to appealing to the American and European palate uh, because Baijiu has this inherent problem that Derek has written uh, really extensively about where like the stuff that Chinese people want in a spirit is not what we want in a spirit. We're like, oh, it has notes of, uh, of X, Y, and Z fruit and the Chinese are like, pleasant, smell lingers in the glass. But see, I kind of I want the 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 real shit. Like I want the stuff that I don't I don't want the Americanized version. I don't want the kind that like, you know, has been with all due respect to to Derek and, you know, I'm sure his product is great too, but like if I'm going to try it for the first time, I want to try, you know, what has what what is the best-selling spirit in the world and kind of experience mm-hmm. it for its own merits and possibly its own flaws, you know? I mean, that's kind of nothing yeah. nothing is is perfect. You know, there are a lot of spirits out there that like I love, but there's certain aspects of it that turn me off and that's okay. I want, I want the, the, the real actual authentic experience and not the kind of like American, you know, not the American version of the office, the one with Ricky Gervais. That's the one I want. (laughs) Well, the interesting thing is that the way that Derek has uh, squared that circle is by partnering with the oldest operating uh, Baijiu distillery in the Sichuan province of China, Luzo, Luzo Laozhao. Uh, I probably just uh, butchered that, but uh, they've been <laughs> making Baijiu. Uh, I did the math since Shakespeare was nine. What? Uh, 
So Ming River Baijiu made by Luzo Laojiao, uh, it's pretty authentic. Okay. Well, now, well, now <laughs> I've got now I've got a new quest. I'm going to try them both side by side and kind of see which which yeah. one I like. Because yeah, I guess totes, I mean totes. I guess there's a precedent for that. I mean, you know, like if you go to Brazil and you have the cachaça that people drink on the street, it is not what you will find on a back bar in the East Village. I can tell you that right now. No, no. Yeah. So, uh, I definitely, I, I'm, I'm super excited about Baijo as well. Uh, for folks who are interested in that, check out our interview with Derek. Uh, it's probably, uh, only about, uh, six or eight episodes ago. So head, uh, head over to that, uh, over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast and check out that interview. And then finally wrapping up here, uh, do you have any unusual or controversial views in the spirits and cocktail world? I can't imagine that you would. I, I actually do. I have one and it's a very esoteric one, but I firmly believe that James Bond is not the antichrist when it comes to martinis. Um, I stepped on a hell of a rake when we had Robert Simonson on the speakeasy. And I, I, I don't even remember in what context I brought up James Bond, but it was a immediate and visceral reaction from both of them. Uh, and, you know, I realized after the fact that there is a whole chapter in Souther's book that's titled Bond, Lame Bond. But here's the thing, is that, like, it is... A, everybody knows shaken, not stirred, right? Which most people in the bar industry know is wrong. That's a great gateway to a conversation. Like, I have started pretty much every discourse I've ever had with someone about why certain drinks are stirred and why certain drinks are shaken by referencing I'll have a martini shaken not stirred and explaining why it's wrong. Without that as a jumping off point, it's it would be a much more kind of esoteric discussion that might go in one ear and out the other for someone that, you know, wants the bartender to shut up so they can drink their drink. But if you have this very classic example of how not to do it, I think it kind of sticks in people's minds a little bit. And also, the guy made martinis really fucking sexy, like he just did. And I wonder, because the Bond character has had so much staying power in American culture, if, you know, the reason that the martini has endured as an archetype, even when people are doing it wrong in the 80s and 90s, is because in the 80s and 90s, we were still making James Bond movies. You know, and if James Bond drank Manhattans, if we would be talking about Apple Hattons or Chaco Hattons, I don't know. But but the guy has a place in history. And even though he did it wrong, I think it's a thing that you have to kind of acknowledge and be aware of and use the wrongness as a way to talk to people about the right way to do stuff. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, I would probably take it even a step further than you, which, uh, you know, I heard that episode with, with Souther and Robert on, <laughs> on, on, on the martini. So you, uh, you I, heard how I got crucified really fast in the studio then. It was a, it was yeah. a coup. I didn't see it coming. Yeah. Um, well, I had also recently written, uh, read and reviewed Souther's book on the podcast. So I, I, was very, I was very acquainted with that chapter to which you refer. But I would actually almost go a step further and say that a Vesper is, is a martini, but it's a very specific type of martini. It's a martini with more volume and more booze than a regular stirred gin martini. You've got vodka in there. You've got kind of Lillet or Lillet Blanc. Uh, and that's a, that's a heavier, more viscous 
uh, mixer than, uh, say, your Dol your classic Dolan driver Muth that you're going to have behind bars today. And so while, yeah, I would take two ounces of gin and an ounce of Dolan dried, a couple dashes of bitters, stir those up, express the twist, boom, serve that up as my nice stirred martini. You know what? I, I like if I like a shaken Vesper. It's got more. It's got more volume, and I I love the uh, I love the what happens when you shake the hell out of it, especially on a hot day like this. It's freaking a hundred degrees where both of both <laughs> you and I are, and I love the effect of the Vesper. When you shake it up, you pour it into the glass. It starts out cloudy, and then suddenly, you know, you take a sip or two. And by the time you look back at it, it's perfectly clear. And somehow the same thing has sort of happened in your body as you've absorbed the temperature <laughs> and the booze of that. It started cloudy and all fucked up. And then all of a sudden you look at it and you're like, oh, it's okay now. Okay, here we go. I never thought of the Vesper as an analogy for the you know healing properties of alcohol, but it actually it works really well. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I personally still prefer a stirred Vesper, but it is one of those ones where I'm willing to say, Hey, you know what, if that's, I, I can see that as a perfectly, you know, a perfectly acceptable differing viewpoint that, you know, I, it's like, uh, it's like, um, Nutella and Marmite, you know, this is the kind of the analogy that I use sometimes. It's like, sometimes people tell me, that they don't like Marmite. And I say, I totally understand where you're coming from. It's not for everybody. And when people tell me they don't like Nutella, I say, what the hell is wrong with you? Nutella is delicious and you're wrong. Like this is, this is a Marmite <laughs> moment. This is the way where I say, okay, like this is a, this is a thing that I like, but your viewpoint is also totally a hundred percent understandable. There's, there's so many possible names for this episode. A Marmite moment would be an interesting <laughs> one. That'd be an interesting non sequitur. Um, yeah, there's, there's so many that we've come across. Uh, Greg, it's been, it's been uh, absolutely fantastic to touch base with you in person, especially because I've been a fan of, of what you've been doing for, uh, for a couple of years now. And um, I was hoping that you'd just uh, kind of take us home by uh, telling folks where they can get a hold of you in the digital space and, and how, uh, notably, they can listen to Bar None and the Speakeasy. We, we we've talked a lot about Bar None, but I, I or uh, the Speakeasy. But I, I would love for uh, for you to to kind of like rep Bar None a little bit because that's your baby, and uh, it's it's uh, such an incredible deep dive podcast that I have a lot of admiration for. So just give us the rundown. Thanks, man. So yeah, uh, Bar None you can find on our website. It's at barnunradio.com. Uh, we're also on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We just wrapped our second season. We are very close to having an exciting announcement about our third season, which I can't spoil yet, but uh, stay tuned. And when that happens, I will be shouting about it on Instagram, uh, where I'm 100 Proof Greg. That's 100 Proof Greg. And as soon as there's more announcements about what's going to come for the third season, we're plotting out what drinks we're going to use, uh, how we're going to structure the episodes. We're doing a little bit of kind of a, a concept album based on everything that's happened in the world since we wrapped up our second season, kind of looking at not just when these drinks were popular, but like what were they used for and who benefited from that and what is like, you know, because in a way, all drinking is for no reason, but no products and commodities exist for no reason. So, like, what was the point behind making these drinks and 
who benefited from that and in a lot of cases who got the short end of that stick. So it's going to be a fun season to look at. Um, and that will hopefully be coming sometime either, well, hopefully sometime this winter, either late this year or early next year. Um, right. And then you can catch up on the speakeasy at uh, heritageradionetwork.org. And then there's a bunch of backslashes and, you know, episode, series, speakeasy. But if you go there and just type in, you know, speakeasy into the search box, it's a great way to find it. A lot of cool episodes. It's it's a fun show. Like I said, it's the most fun thing I get to do all week. I hang out. I have a little cheeky beer or whiskey in the middle of the afternoon and I hang with Souther and Damon and whoever happens to be on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Both uh, amazing podcasts. You can find them all in your favorite podcast apps for free. And I'm assuming that the announcement that you're teasing but not telling us is that uh, the season three is going to be live on Broadway, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. We're just waiting. <laughs> we're just waiting for the Eugene O'Neill Theater to reopen. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Um, well, uh, Greg, uh, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, we're going to give our listeners all the resources that we can give them to go ahead and support the uh, Restaurants Act. And um, hopefully there will be more good news than bad news coming to us uh, that we can share here moving forward. But uh, for now, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, man. This is fun. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, bar industry bailout insights courtesy of Greg Benson, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.